Amen. So before we hit pause on our study of Mark in order to focus on Holy Week, you may recall that we studied an interaction between Jesus and a paralyzed man. That Jesus was there in Capernaum. He was, he was preaching and he was teaching there in the house of the Apostle Peter. And people had figured out that this Jesus was a man that deserved attention. Both through the power of his preaching, the, the authority in his preaching, and then through his healing touch. How he could heal with just a word or with a, just a touch. How he would completely and totally heal those that came into contact with him, those that were in need of healing. And so the crowds had gathered, so much so that there wasn't even room by the door to get into the house. So there was this paralyzed man, but he had four friends, and his four friends, they believed that Jesus could heal their buddy. And so they climbed up onto the roof of the house, and they made a hole, and then they lowered their friend down before Jesus. And then Jesus, seeing the, seeing the faith of the friends, he looked at the man, and he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes were just, they were blown away by this. And so, driven by, by what they had just seen, they asked the right question, but they came to the wrong conclusion. They said, who, who, can forgive, who can forgive sins but God alone? See, their theology was right on this. Nobody has the right, the authority, the power to forgive sins but God alone. Because ultimately, all sins are sins against God. Their theology was solid at that point. The problem was that their conclusion that they couldn't possibly believe that they were standing before the Son of God. And so their conclusion was, he's blaspheming. Despite the healings that they had seen, despite the authority of the teaching, despite all the signs and wonders they had already seen by this point in Jesus' ministry, they just couldn't, they couldn't in their hearts, they couldn't in their minds, they couldn't in their spirits believe that this could possibly be the Son of God. One that had the right to declare the forgiveness of sins. And yet unfazed by their doubts, unfazed by their un unbelief and distrust and for the sake of those that had eyes that could see Jesus continued as he looked down and he said to the man take up your mat walk and go home and just like that with the word the man was completely healed he rose up and he went on and the people stood there in awe and wonder they'd never seen anything like this before they were completely blown away and so it's there that we continue our study of Mark's gospel so there in your homes I invite you to stand to your feet we return to the second chapter of Mark's gospel. We're going to read verse 13 through 17. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. Father God, would you, uh, would you steady our hearts now? We know, Father, that it's easy when our patterns are broken for distractions to abound. That the enemy wants nothing more than to just use this time of upheaval and uncertainty and this breaking our pattern to distract us. 
to draw our hearts away from the very purpose for which we gather today, and that's the worship of you. Yet, Father, at the same time, we know that if we will entrust to you our very lives, that all the strangeness, all the inconsistencies, all the broken patterns can be a tool in your hands. That's our desire this morning. That you use this as a special opportunity, Father. To catch us while our balance is broken. Catch us while we stand in a moment of uncertainty, under no false illusion that we have control over anything. That you would draw us closer to you. Speak to us now through your word. It's your son's precious name we pray. Amen. So the text began. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. You may remember that after Jesus had healed the, had healed the man of the demon there in the synagogue, and he had healed Peter's uh, mother-in-law there in their home, and he had healed all those in Capernaum that had come to him that were sick, that the next morning the apostles found him that he had, he had left the town. He had gone out there in the wilderness to be alone with the Father. And as they came to him, they said, listen, Jesus, this crowd is here and everybody's looking for you and you've got to go back. You've got to engage the people. You have to give them more of what they want. You've got to capitalize on this newfound fame that you're now enjoying. That Jesus' response to them was this. Let us go on to the next town that I may preach there also, for this is why I came out. That Jesus' purpose in coming to earth, his very purpose for being born of a virgin, was so that he might preach the gospel. He, was, he had come to seek and save those that were lost. And the lost are saved when the gospel of Jesus Christ is preached. And so what we find here is that he's out there by the sea fulfilling his purpose. The whole purpose for his ministry, the purpose for his coming to earth, he was fulfilling his purpose there by the sea. Because he couldn't go into towns any longer. Because anytime you found Jesus in a town, the town got overrun. And so he would often go out there by the sea, by the Lake of Galilee. And it was there that he was preaching at this time. Verse 14. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at a tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. So we meet a new man now, a man by the name of Levi. Now, Levi was a fairly common name as one of the sons of Jacob, the one through whom the tribe of the priests and the, and the Levites came. Many people would have named their son Levi. This Levi was the son of Alphaeus. But apparently, Alphaeus was also a fairly common name. You remember that there was two apostles Two followers of Jesus Christ by the name of James. There was James, the brother of John, whose father was Zebedee, one of the, the inner circle there, the sons of thunder that were there with Jesus. There was another James. Call him James the Lesser today. His father's name was also Alphaeus. So you've got two apostles whose father's names are Alphaeus. You've got two of them whose names are James. Well, now we're meeting one of those sons of Alphaeus, and his name is Levi. He's also known by the name of Matthew. Now, it wasn't terribly common in that time for somebody to have two Hebrew names. You remember that Mark, that wrote the gospel that we're reading today, that his name is John Mark, that John is his Hebrew name, but that Mark is a Roman. Mark is a Roman name. And so it's, it's not terribly common that you would find somebody that has two Hebrew names, Levi, Matthew, Matthew, Levi. But that's who we have here. This is the same Matthew that would go on not only to be apostle of Jesus Christ, but to be used of the Holy Spirit to record for us the gospel of Matthew. It's a critical moment in, in Jesus' ministry as he's calling this man. And it's safe to say, we don't know a whole lot about 
a whole lot about Levi. We know nothing about him up to this point. But it, it's safe to say that he was not the most well-respected amongst all the Jews. Because what we find is that Jesus finds him there in a tax booth. Anybody that was in a tax booth was, spoiler alert, a tax collector. And tax collectors were not the most loved of all people within, within Israel. As a matter of fact, they were considered to be as low as thieves and murderers. And so when we talk about tax collectors in today's day and age, I don't, you don't have to go up to the average American and express to them why they're not supposed to love the tax man. Nobody loves paying their taxes. But there was something particularly dastardly about tax collectors back in this time. Just as in present day, there was taxes on everything. You bought something, there was a tax. If you sold something, there was a tax. If you traveled, there was a tax. If you, uh, if you made income, there was a tax. If you died, there was a tax. There was a tax on everything. No matter what you did, the man was always there with his hand out asking for his cut. And as the political power in all the earth, Rome was the man. And so Levi, a tax collector, and other tax collectors like him, they were there collecting taxes on behalf of the enemy, on behalf of the Romans. These unclean Gentiles that had, that had oppressed the Jewish people, he was there working, a traitor, working on behalf of the enemy to collect taxes from his own people, from God's people. But it was worse than that. Because you see, in that day and age, the tax collector didn't just take the exact amount that was due and then funnel it on. What we find is that the tax collector was allowed to keep anything above and beyond that which was owed. Think about this. It's a whole lot more like working for the mob. Right, So that if your tax bill was 1000 bucks, if I can squeeze you for $1,500, i have just had a pretty profitable day. I get to put 500 bucks in my pocket and pass on the rest. And so what you would find from these tax collectors is there was, there was extortion, there was strong-arming, there was bullying. There was a whole lot of incentive for them, not just to collect your tax, but to collect every, every bit above and beyond that that they could. That's the way that they made their living. So much so that what, what you see here now is not, not just are they traitors, but they're thieves. They're scoundrels. They're scumbags. Nobody loved the tax collector. And again, they would have been counted amongst thieves and murderers all throughout, all throughout the New Testament. In fact, you'll, you'll usually find these two groups talked about almost as one, tax collectors and sinners, as if the epitome of what it means to be a sinner is to be a tax collector. That's who this man was, Levi, that we find in contact with Jesus. And According to the oral law, you remember that there's the written law of Moses, but then there were those people that came behind him, and they helped to interpret that law for the people. How does this apply today? And they would even add laws upon the written laws that God had given through Moses. They would add laws, and according to some of those traditions, according to some of those oral laws, a tax collector couldn't enter, enter certain parts of the temple. A tax collector's offerings weren't to be accepted. Tax collectors couldn't serve as witnesses in court trials. It was legal to lie to tax collectors. Truly, these men were the scum of the earth, and that's the man that Jesus comes into, into contact with. And it would have made sense for there to have been a tax booth there in Capernaum because it was kind of a long, a, a major route that you would have come out of one territory into another. So it would have made sense for there to have been a tax booth there. And the way that these, the way that these positions came about is almost like purchasing a franchise. You would have had to purchase the right to run this tax booth. So we can assume that Levi came from at least some means. He had enough money to purchase his spot here. And then depending on the volume that ran through the tax booth, that would have increased the price that it fetched. Makes sense. The more, the more revenue that passes through here, the more I can take as my cut, the more I can squeeze out of the people that are paying their taxes, the more profitable this spot, the more I'll pay for this franchise, for this tax booth. So we know that much about this Levi. We can also assume that Levi cared very little about his social standing. 
because it cost him too much in every other area. There's only one reason that somebody would become a tax collector, money. You've got to love money more than you love everything else because, frankly, you're going to give up almost everything else in order to collect this money. You're not going to be well-loved. You're not going to be well-respected. You're not going to be able to go and participate in proper worship. You're not going to be a religious man. You're going to give up everything for the sake of this. And so we can assume that that's who this Levi was. And now as Jesus is passing by, he calls to him. This wretched piece of, of untouchable scum, just as he had with Andrew and Peter and James and John, Jesus cries out to him, follow me. And with just that word, Matthew, Levi, the tax collector, he gets up and he goes. He immediately follows just as the other have. And now with, with Andrew and Peter and James and John, with those guys, when they left their life of fishing, they didn't necessarily close that door forever. Now, don't get me wrong. They paid a great cost to follow Jesus. They did abandon everything to follow Christ. And yet we know that they had the ability to go back to that life. What we see is that after Jesus was crucified and after he was resurrected, that he finds them there back on the water fishing again. They were able to return to that at some point. That wasn't going to be the case for Levi. Again, this was a profitable enterprise. And so amongst the greedy, there would have been a line all the way around the building waiting to jump in. The Romans weren't going to have to look long to find somebody to take Matthew's place. And so he wasn't going to be able to just follow after this Jesus for a while and say, okay, I'm back now. I'm ready to make some money in my tax booth. Truly, he had abandoned everything. That's what Luke tells us, that he left everything for the sake of following Jesus. Verse 15, and as he reclined at the table in his house, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And so Mark jumps a little bit. We don't know how far ahead he jumps, but he jumps to a dinner party. I like to imagine that it's the same night. I like to imagine that Levi is so moved by his interaction with Jesus that he's going to have this last hurrah in honor of Jesus. He's going to take the last of this dirty tax money, and he's going to throw a party in honor of Jesus. We also don't know exactly what house they were in. It doesn't tell us for sure whether they were in the house where Jesus stayed or they were in Levi's house. But again, I like to imagine that they were up on this just fabulous house up on a hill that was bought with this tax money, this money that he had stole from his people. And he's there and he's having this party in honor of Jesus. And so Matthew invites, Levi invites the only people that he knew. That was a bunch of sinners, a bunch of hooligans, a bunch of leg breakers. Because not only were the, were the, the tax collectors viewed as untouchable, Almost worse than a leper, right? The lepers were unclean, physically unclean, and perhaps there was some thought in your mind that maybe he deserves this uncleanliness. You knew for sure who a tax collector was. Truly untouchable. Nobody was going to come anywhere near you. And so he invited the only people that he knew, a bunch of thugs, because he would have employed a bunch of people around him, a bunch of other sinners around him to help him in this collection. And so that's what he's got. He's invited these other people to come, this general collection of hooligans here. And so you need to picture this. They're here in this house. I believe it's Levi's house. They're here in this house. They're throwing this party, and you've got Jesus, Jesus' disciples, Levi, and then the cast from that bar scene in Star Wars, right? Like just, a, just, a, just all the grotesque losers of the world, and they're all gathered together. And now Jesus' guys, they weren't the most religious. They weren't the most holy, but there had to have been some feel of us versus them, right? Like you got to imagine they're kind of sitting in the corner going, look, I know we're not priests, I know we're not the most holy, but we ain't them. What are we doing here? How did we end up here, Jesus? But they're, but they're there, and they're enjoying, this, they're enjoying this party. In verse 16, and the scribes of the Pharisees. So we already talked about the scribes. Now we're meeting a new group of people, the Pharisees. There were some scribes that came out of this group called the Pharisees. 
When they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You want to know who probably wasn't invited to the party? The Pharisees. So we meet these people. These are lay people. These are not priests. They're not people that had some official role within the temple. These were lay people that were learned in the law. They, they, they knew the law. They knew God's word. They were very orthodox in their understanding of God's word. And so they helped teach and preach the word to other people. They, they loved God's law so much so that they added laws on top of that to make sure they didn't come anywhere near the line in the sand. Right, the line of the sin right here says that we're to tithe on all of our income. We're going to tithe on even every little, every little speck of grain, every little everything, that they would continue to add laws, originally driven by a love for God's law. And so at this point, there was about 6,000 Pharisees roaming around the land, and they were quite influential. They had some power in the land. And so today, we hear the word Pharisees, we hear about these Pharisees, and immediately we boo and we hiss. We immediately think of these just wretched guys. But it's not necessarily true that all the Pharisees were opposed to Jesus, not directly opposed to Jesus. Yes, we know that Paul, who was originally called Saul, we know that he was a Pharisee, and we know how much zeal he had in the persecution of the church. We know that certainly there were those Pharisees that were opposed at Jesus at every turn, but then we meet another Pharisee by the name of Nicodemus, the one with whom Jesus spoke when we read his words in John 3, and we know that he was at least generally interested. He wanted to hear something of what Jesus had to preach, and we know that he had played a part in the burial of Jesus after his crucifixion. And so at the root, not necessarily were all the Pharisees bad guys, but you can bet that these guys weren't invited to this party. And even if they had been invited to this party, you can guarantee that they wouldn't have come. Because part of the oral tradition was that if any tax collector were to enter a home or even touch the home, the home becomes unclean. So they would not have come anywhere near this house. They wouldn't have come into the party. They wouldn't come into the house, and yet they're there. And so we can only assume that they're on the outside looking in. Because you remember, these houses were built in a very open way. And so we can imagine that these, that these Pharisees were outside, and they were looking in on the party. Can you even imagine? I know that it's difficult to, to really understand the context, looking back 2,000 years. But can you imagine? This guy, he decides to follow after Jesus and throw a party in his honor. And he's there with Jesus and the disciples and, and his other sinful buddies. And now here are these dudes that didn't want anything to do with him before. They would have spit on him. They would have turned their back on him. They wouldn't even come into a house because he was there. And now all of a sudden they're so interested in what he's doing because he's following after Jesus that they're standing outside like a bunch of creepos, hiding in the bushes, looking in on this party. Now, I've got to imagine that this is not as out of the ordinary back then as it is today. Because I can't imagine that one of these leg breakers of Levi wouldn't have gone out there and just wrecked shop on these dudes. We're having a party and you ain't invited. What are you doing here? Quit peeking in on us. Take a hike. But they're there and they're looking into this party. They're, 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 they're watching. They're, they're peeping. Weirdos. And so the Pharisees, they, 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 they go and they ask the disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? You will always find the Pharisees asking questions, not because they genuinely want to know, not because they really want to know more about Jesus or possibly follow himself. They just want to trip him up. So why, why, does, why does Jesus not, why does he allow you to pick grain on the Sabbath? And why does he heal on the Sabbath? And why does he not make you wash your hands before you eat? Wash your hands before you eat. Jesus condones that. He wants you to wash your hands before you eat, but he's, he's talking about just religiously, right? This doesn't earn you anything for the kingdom of God, washing your hands in the way. They were always asking these questions because they just didn't get it. If you're truly the son of God, as you claim, if you truly have the authority to forgive sins, if you've truly come to usher in the kingdom of God, if you truly love the law of God the way that you say you do, how can you eat with these people? 
How can you, it doesn't just say that he was sitting around a table and grabbing something fast. It says that he was reclining. He was, he was, he's laying down at the table. This was a very slow meal. This was a real moment of fellowship, a time of fellowship and communion that he was having with these people. Verse 17, and when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. Quit trying to whisper around Jesus. As a matter of fact, you need to watch your thoughts because he can hear those too. So quit whispering outside thinking Jesus can't hear the question that you're asking. And he hears exactly what they're asking. He speaks to them in an analogy. He says, look, the doctor doesn't come to heal the, the healthy person. The healthy person's okay just as they are. The doctor has come to heal the sick. Similarly, I have not come for the righteous but for the sinner. Now, don't get it twisted. These dudes were not righteous. There is none righteous, no, not one. Only God is good. Only God is holy. Only God is righteous. But they believed that they were. They believed in themselves that they were righteous. And so what they found was that because they thought that they had no need of healing, when the physician came, they were going to remain sick. They were going to find no healing because they didn't believe that they needed it. Deep down, they thought that they were the healthy people. They thought that they were the righteous people. And so because of this sense of self-righteousness, because of this sense of self-health, because they believed that they had no need of cleansing whatsoever, it's only natural that that would lead them to a place of looking down their noses at the sick people. At the unhealthy people. You'll remember the story in Luke 18 when Jesus is talking about these two men that go into the, go in there to the, to the temple and, and how one of them is a, is a tax collector and he's there and he's beating his breast and he's saying, dear God, would you forgive me? I know that I'm sick. I know that I'm unclean, but that there's another man there and that other man, that Pharisee, he looks over and he says, dear God, I thank you that you've not made me like other men. Thank you that, you, thank you that you've not made me a sinner. I thank you that you've not made me a tax collector like this dude here. It's only natural when we find within ourselves some kind of righteousness, some kind of holiness, that naturally it lends us to this moment of looking down. It's a story as old as time. The religious man looking down upon the irreligious. But it struck me this week as I, as I read through this story, and I really tried to think about it in its first century context and then think about it today. This story would never play out like this today, ever. Do you really believe that if this exact same scene would have played out today, that people would have believed that Jesus was too forgiving, too compassionate? Do you really believe that people today, even people within the American church, that they would have looked and demanded more judgment out of Jesus? I don't think so. I imagine today that what they would have done is they would have heard Jesus' words as he said in front of these people, they're sinners and they're sick. And people have said, whoa, 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 whoa. You don't get to speak like that. Is everything okay? All right. Or we would have we would have skipped ahead to like John five. And we would, have, we, would have, we would have seen the scene there when Jesus heals the paralytic man and he says to him, you need to go and you need to sin no more so that nothing worse would happen to you. Or you think about when he heals the, uh, when he saves the adulterous woman there as the people are gathered together to stone her and, and he says to the man, listen, those of you that are without sin, I want you to throw the first stone. And then he looks at the woman and he says, woman, go and sin no more. You can imagine people today crying out and say, look, Jesus, it's cool when you said that don't throw the first stone thing. Look, we're going to use that all the time. Make sure people don't, can't ever call us to repent. Thanks for that. But who are you to call this woman a sinner? Who are you to tell this man to go and sin no more? Who are you to call these people that are sitting there at your party unclean, unhealthy, 
and in need of being cleansed, in need of salvation. Who are you to call us in that? Who are you doing that? The people would not have been outraged by the level of Jesus' compassion. They would have been outraged that he acknowledged sin at all. It would a very different scene if this thing would have played out today. But I think, that, I think that what we can learn from this is that no matter which side of the coin we fall on, whether, whether you fall along the lines of the Pharisees and believing that God should treat people with more harsh judgment, that Jesus had no business eating and communing and fellowshipping with these kind of people, or you find yourself on the other end thinking that no sin should be dealt with at all. We, are, we stand in great danger of completely missing the gospel that Jesus is revealing to us in this. And so I caught myself. I, I, oh, over, over the course of my adult life, I think, I've, I've caught myself as we come to stories like this, after my initial outrage, because right, you hear the Pharisees and you already know what's going to happen, right? There's going to be a sinner. Jesus is going to be compassionate to the sinner. The Pharisees are going to hate it. We all hate the Pharisees, right? That's the kind of the normal pattern. It plays out the minute we come to this. But after you get through that, then I find myself asking, what were the Pharisees supposed to do? More specifically, what am I supposed to do? I'm a guy that, generally speaking, I love the Lord and I love his law. I love God and I do the best I can to represent him well in this world. Now, I don't think I need to remind you that I'm far from perfect. I don't think I need to remind you that I am a wretch of a sinner and that I still look up every single day and look around me and go, how are these sins still here? At 40 years of age and 20-something years of spiritual age, how in the world am I still standing in the middle of this kind of sin? How have I not outgrown this? I'm a long way from perfect. But it is my heart's desire to honor God. It is my heart's desire to live a life of obedience to him and to represent him well in this world. So how then am I called to relate to sinners like this? What were the Pharisees supposed to do? What am I supposed to do? And now I'm not talking about people that are within our faith family. I'm not talking about people that profess to be believers. Jesus gave us very, um, very straightforward instruction in Matthew 18 as to how we are to relate to those people that call themselves brothers and sisters and yet persist in sin. He just walks us right through it. You go to them one-on-one with a heart that has a desire for reconciliation, to see your brother be restored. You come to him one-on-one and you say, brother, I find this sin in your life and I'm calling you to repent. I love you. I want to see you restored to the church and to whoever it is that you've sinned against. But more importantly, I want to see you reconciled to God. Would you repent? Would you turn away? Then if your brother refuses, you take another. Again, with a heart that wants reconciliation, the heart of love, you go to that brother, you say, brother, look, I still see this sin persisting. I don't see you repenting. I'm calling you, please, for the love of God, for the sake of your soul, would you repent and return? If they still refuse, you take them before the church. If even in the witness before, in standing before the church as witnesses, if even then they refuse to repent, you treat them the way that they presented themselves, as unrepentant, as non-believers. You remove them from the fellowship, and you continue to call them to repentance. You continue to keep the gospel before them. But those aren't the dudes that I'm talking about. I'm talking about those people that are in our lives that have no use for Christ. I'm talking about those people that they don't claim the name of Christ. They don't have any use for the church. They don't claim the name of Christ. They don't claim to be brothers and sisters in Christ. What you find is these people that are just living lives of absolute sin and have no desire and no intention of turning away. How do we relate to those people? Well, I think based on what we see in Jesus' life that clearly the answer is not that we completely ignore the sin and go and live lives that look just like them. 
As a matter of fact, this is when I read Psalms 1 in the context of this story, this is where my heart kind of breaks a little bit for the Pharisees because you, you read what Psalms 1 says, Psalms 1, 1 through 2. Blessed is a man, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. That they would have said, listen, I don't want to walk in the way of scoffers. I don't want to walk in the ways of evil men. I don't want to follow after these men. I, for the sake of my own soul, my own witness, my own walk with God, I want to avoid this at all costs. I think that's, I think that's in part these kind of texts that would have torn these guys apart. They couldn't figure out, okay, well then how do I relate to these guys that are walking in the ways of scorners and sinners and the wicked? And I think that if we look at, we look at one of Peter's letters, 1 Peter what we find there is that he, he's telling us that when we don't walk in the way of scorners and sinners and the wicked, that it's going to set us up for a life of tension. Peter says this, 1 Peter 4, 1 through 5. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they, that's the world, with respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. What he's saying is that when you choose not to follow in this path, when you heed the warning of the psalmist, it says, do not walk in the way of the wicked. You're going to set yourselves up for tension. That the world is going to malign you because you don't follow them in this drunkenness, in these orgies, and all these other lives of just absolute sinfulness. They're going to malign you, but then that presents you an opportunity to present to them the excellencies of Christ, to give them a reason for your hope, to point them towards the reality of a changed life that comes in Christ. That, that you're going to have the opportunity and the responsibility to have these conversations. Because you cannot truly love someone while continuing to ignore the elephant in the room that is sin. That thing that is going to lead to their death, their damnation, their separation from God. You cannot truly love somebody and then continue to tolerate the things which are destroying them. And at the same time, if, if you look at the book of Ezekiel, you see this call from God on our lives. He, he, he talks about a watchman on a tower and how if you see the enemies coming, if you see destruction and war coming your way and you don't sound the trumpet, then the blood of the people that die is on your hands. That we've got a responsibility to speak the truth to these people, to call them to repentance, to call them to turn away, to call them to walk in life rather than death. So the answer cannot be that we just stick our head in the sand and just live and let live. And yet I find that that's where so many Christians err today. That so many Christians come and they know that we're not supposed to be like the Pharisees. We're not supposed to be judgmental. Let he that is without sin cast the first stone. And so we stick our head in the sand and we completely act like there is no such thing as sin. We try to live lives that look just like the rest of the world. That we believe that the call on a Christian's life, that what loving our neighbor looks like, is living a life that never makes them uncomfortable. That we praise Christians that can go and they can just blend in with the rest of the world and they cannot be seen any different than them other than maybe they wear a WWJD bracelet or maybe they go to that one building on Sunday morning while the rest of the world's sleeping anyway. So that's what we do. We find these people that in this postmodern age that they're praised. Instead of being praised for their self-righteousness, instead of being praised for their own self-proposed holiness, they're being praised for their open-mindedness, for taking the narrow road that leads to heaven and making it into the broad road where everybody can come. No matter what your life looks like and no matter who you follow as Lord. 
All we've done is we've taken, and, and, and instead of having pride over self-righteousness, we carry that same pride over self-determination. But in either way, we still make ourselves Lord of our own lives. We're not following Jesus and trying to perfect our own holiness, just as we're not following Jesus. And when we say, I can live however I want. You can live however you want. And pretending that there's no such thing as sin and no such thing as consequences for sin. And we will see people that, 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 that fall into this, let's just call it irreligious. They fall into this irreligious trap. They fall into this pride. They, they begin to look down their nose when they start to call believers bigots, closed-minded, narrow. They, they begin to say things like, you know what? Organized religion is for the weak. I don't need to belong to the church to be the church. Why would I listen to a bunch of words written by a bunch of old white dead dudes? But they, but they withdraw from the gifts of the church. They withdraw from the things that God has given us. And so I, I don't believe for one second that the answer can be to completely ignore sin. But I still haven't answered the question yet. What do we do then? If it's not to ignore the sin, what do we do then? How do we address sin? How do we confront sin? How do we deal with sin in the lives of non-believers and at the same time not fall off into this path of being a Pharisee, being a moralist, being a self-righteous snob? I believe, I truly believe that the answer is just having a biblical, Christ-centered view of the gospel. I really do believe that it's that simple. Because if you think about how do, how do people find themselves in that place? How do the Pharisees find themselves as where they were? How do the moralists of today, how do the self-righteous of today, how do they find themselves where they were? I think that it's a complete and total focus on sin. That they focus... What, while this group over here completely ignores the reality of sin, these folks focus so deeply on sin. What happens is they're living their life. Oftentimes what you'll find is the moralist, the Pharisee of today, they're among the most wretched before that. Their, their sin was, not all, but many of them, their sin was on such incredible display so that they, when they came into contact with the holy God, the holy creator of everything that was, they couldn't help but see the gulf that existed. They saw their depravity. They saw their sin. They saw their lack. They saw just how short they had fallen of God's glory, and they hated their filth. And so what did you do? If sin is the problem, then I guess I need to attack the sin. If doing bad things was the problem, then the answer's got to be doing good things, right? God says in his word, be holy as I am holy. So I'm going to work. I'm going to white knuckle this thing. I'm going to bear down. I'm going to do some good stuff. I'm going to do some holy stuff. And they have some success for a while. Look, they, they, they begin to, their language cleans up. Maybe they master their bad habits for a little while. They even start to read their Bible and they start to attend church. And people start to praise them. They look around them and they say, I start to look like the church. I start to look like these Christians that called me to something different. Because again, these people have come to them and they've called them just quit sinning. They focused on the sin. Well, look, I seem to have mastered some of my sin. And then they begin to grow in confidence and they look around them and go, I'm fitting in. I'm starting to look like this, this church. I think I'm starting to look like Jesus a little bit. But the problem is it's fool's gold. Because inside we're still the same wretched sinners. And eventually we're going to stumble. And then we've got one of two options. It's either we can say, well, that didn't work, and we can wander away, or we double down. Look, if going to church once a week was good, how much better would it be, would it be to go to church twice a week? If reading three verses a day worked, I'm going to read six. We just continue our efforts, and all we're doing is we're sharpening our focus on our sin and on ourselves. We're going deeper into this hole that leads to moralism. It leads us into being Pharisees. But we don't know anything else. Nobody's taught us anything different. Nobody's preached anything different. So again, we go deeper into this self-obsession, self further in our own, 
own efforts. And it's generally at this point that things get really, really messy. Because look, if I'm earning this holiness before God, if it's my own efforts that are accomplishing this righteousness, I'm owed something. Surely the respect of men and the blessing of God is owed to me. Look at how much work I'm doing. Look at how much I've given up for the sake of this. And then when that doesn't come, we believe that either God has failed to live up to his end of the bargain or we have failed to be holy enough. We either despise God as a liar or we hate ourselves all the more because we've not been able to truly master ourselves the way that we think we're supposed to master ourselves in, in order to be found holy, in order to receive the blessings that God has had in our life. And so what, what we find here is this, this just this waffling back and forth between self-confidence when we do good. Look, I read my Bible and I walk away feeling good, not because I've met with God, but because I did good things. This is what good little boys do. They read their Bible. And so I go alone into my closet and I read the word and I say some kind of prayer and I come out of there feeling good. I'm a good boy. I ate my vitamins today. I made my bed. You don't feel anything because you've actually met with God, but you do walk out of there feeling high. And yet when things don't go the way that you should, when you haven't obeyed the way that you should, when you don't receive the blessing that you should, you then feel low. This is the life of the Pharisee. Back and forth between hating men because they don't praise you Distrusting God because he doesn't bless you and despising yourself because you're not more holy yet. There's truly no one more miserable in all the earth, in, in all the earth than these people. Their identity completely wrapped up in performance. How did I perform before God today? That's where I will find my identity. I can't even enjoy this life of self-determination anymore. I pledge my life to something different and yet I know I'm never going to meet up to the standard. I set this standard for myself and I'm never going to get there. Boy, oh boy, have I lived there. Completely dissatisfied with this life. Completely dissatisfied with this thing that is called Christianity. I was never following Christ. It's from that place that we begin to then look down upon our neighbors. When we see them having, when we see them having some, level of, some level of success, we distrust it because we know it's within our own heart. They must be fake because we feel like fakes. We wait for them to fail because we know that we're going to fail. And yet when we're succeeding, we look down our nose at them and go, look at us. You should figure out the tricks that I've figured out. You should try harder like I've tried. We begin to judge them based on the same performance standards that we've judged ourselves. That's where this distrust and this hatred and this, this, this life of absolute just despising these people. Are. And it's not, always this, it's not always this outward, blatant ugliness. It's usually a whole lot more sneaky than that, right? It's as you're driving to the church house and you see your neighbor driving to the ball field and you just. Or it's when they post something on Facebook and it's a picture of them and having a family dinner and they've got a beer on the table and you. You probably screenshot that for later. Or you hear them talking about a television show that was. Christians don't watch that kind of, that kind of smut. It's these sneaky things, these sneaky things, because you set for yourself this own performance standard. That's where you derive your sense of identity and self-worth. And when they don't meet up to that, they're to be despised. They're to be looked down upon. And we may even reach out to those folks and tell them, look, I love you, I love you, and I don't want to see this sin taken over. And so, look, let me tell you about the way that I've changed my life. No, you tell them it's because you found God. 
You tell them it's because you love Jesus. But in reality, you've just picked your own brand of religion. And the spokesman for that religion happens to be a guy named Jesus. WWJD, that's about your extent of dealing with Jesus. He's just a moral example. He's just a picture of what you're trying to accomplish in your own life. He's the hero that we're trying to chase after. That's really the extent of your dealings with Jesus. And so then when the, when the sinners around us just shrug, they're not impressed by this. They shrug, I'm not impressed by this. We despise them all the more. We just add them to that list. I'm going to show you. So now when we wake up in the morning, we want to meet our performance standards. We want to do better by God. We want to live this holy life that we're trying to manufacture on our own. We're now doing it in spite of them. You just made the naughty list. I'm not going to do this to despise you. I'm going to rub my holiness in your face. And I'm going to celebrate when you fail. I'm going to celebrate when your kids rebel. I'm going to celebrate when your life falls apart. Because you didn't buy into my brand of religion. So that outwardly what happens is we begin to look more and more like Jesus. We're going to figure it out. Look, we're smart folks. As you, as you mature, if you've got half a brain in your head, you figure out how to play the game. You figure out how to talk the talk. You figure out how to go to the right places. You figure out how to serve in the right committees. You can figure out how to play the game well enough that you look outwardly a whole lot like Jesus and you blend in with those that truly are like Jesus. So that outwardly, you have all the appearance of holiness, all the appearance of knowing Christ, while inside your heart has never been further from him. Look, at least when you found this Jesus, you're able to enjoy your sin. Not anymore. You can no longer enjoy your sin and you can't enjoy the church. You despise those that continue to enjoy the sin and you despise the church because you don't find any kind of fulfillment there. Sound familiar? I wish I could say that that was years ago for me. But I fight this battle every week. Week after week I find myself fighting this very same battle. This, this, this self-obsessed, self-centered, sin-focused battle. It causes me to hate myself, distrust God, and look down upon my nose on my neighbor. The contrast that now with the true gospel of grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel that is Christ. Contrast that with a man that comes to a moment in his life where he sees his sin in contrast with the perfectly holy and righteous king of the universe. And rather than trying to fix this thing themselves, recognizing I can't do it, they submit. What humility. To find a problem, not just a problem out there, but a problem in you that is so despicable you know you can't fix it. Truly without hope and without help apart from turning to God. You remember on Wednesday night we talked about Paul and his trip towards Rome there on the ship. And the ship was just getting, just getting beat up by the storm. They knew that, they knew that this ship wasn't going to hold together much longer. And they hadn't seen the sun or the stars in days. So they weren't able to navigate any longer. They were completely at the end of themselves. The things that they trusted in were gone. Their own strength was failing. And the scripture says this, finally recognizing things as they were, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. To the point where they know I can't fix this. Not with my stuff and not with my abilities. I can't fix this. The moralist isn't there yet. You see, because the moralist has been told that man at its root is mostly good. That humanity, at our core, we're mostly good. So what I've got to do is I've got to maximize the good and just minimize the bad. There's some goodness still in there, so I just need to work harder to bring out more of the goodness. They're not at this point of absolute submission. Because in, in absolute terror, they're, going to, they're, they're terrified at the thought of letting loose of the reins. Terrified at the thought of letting Jesus take control. 
I'm going to do anything I have to do to avoid any real contact with this Jesus. There's, <laughs> Flannery O'Connor is, is an author, and she was, in one of her books, one of her characters says this, the best way to avoid Jesus is to avoid sin. You ever live there? Where you say, you know what? I know that this Jesus is the solution to my sin, but rather than have any real contact with him, rather than to submit to, with, to him, rather than do any real business with him, I'm just going to work really hard on getting rid of the sin. Now, you're never going to get there, but that becomes the aim. I don't want to have to sit in a room alone with Jesus. I don't want to have to hand my life over to him. So I'm going to become a moralist, a Pharisee. I'm going to do everything I can to avoid dealing with Jesus in any real meaningful way. But that's not what we find with the one that truly turns to him. They truly submit. They look around them and they don't see goodness within themselves. They believe that they are depraved. They believe that apart from Jesus Christ or apart from some change outside of themselves, they will remain completely and totally depraved with a problem that cannot be fixed by any level of effort. Some of them have gone down the path and found that it leads to nowhere. Some of them are just so depraved and so, so, so clear in their mind about their depravity at that moment that they're immediate, immediately willing. That they've now washed up on shore, just weary and hungry and beaten and broke and done. That's where God wants you. He wants you to wash up on the shore with no strength left, no hope of fixing yourself, no sight of goodness within yourself, to just lay out on the beach, just, just beat down. Say, so there is no hope. All hope of saving ourselves is gone. Jesus, now will you do something with me? It's then that we're ready to hear his words. Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As we lean back into Christ, is we trust in him, no longer fighting, no longer striving, no longer working, just truly resting in Jesus Christ. It is there that we find those burdens truly lifted. It's there that we find real rest. It's there that we find real change. That then obedience begins to flow from our love for him and in his power. No longer are we fighting against this, just constantly running on this treadmill trying to earn obedience. That of love for him. Yes, we still despise our sin, but we despise our sin because we know it's not like him. It's not like our new nature. It's displeasing to him. And then we trust in his power to bring us to obedience. No longer is that a fear for rejection. No longer do we avoid sin because we're worried that we're going to lose his blessings in this life or the next. That we're resting in him. We're leaning back into him. We're trusting in him. By the way, you'll notice the word in him. I think we've lost our way. I think we've lost our way. You want to know the most popular, not most popular, most frequent way that the apostles talked about salvation, talked about the gospel? Go do a word study for yourself this evening. What you'll find is that over and over and over again, all throughout Scripture, when God's people, those first century saints, when they're there, those that have walked with Jesus Christ, those that have heard the message of the gospel from his mouth, over and over and over again, when they talk about salvation, you know what they talk about? Being in him. The problem is we've tried to grasp at all the promises of the gospel without grasping the gospel. The gospel is Christ. In him. In him you find rest. In him you find forgiveness. In him you find assurance. In him you find justification. In him you find adoption. In him all these things come. That's then in him that you can truly overcome sin. You can true, find true obedience, lasting obedience, a change in nature. And then our, then our identity is no longer wrapped up in our performance. No longer is our, our identity wrapped up in our service in the church. How many hours a day we've read the Bible. How our quiet time has gone this week. How our language has been. 
No longer is our identity wrapped up in our performance, in our obedience. Again, our identity is found in him. In him. This new creation that can only be found in him. Then we simply look to Jesus when we struggle. When something pops up that doesn't belong, we just go back and we go, Jesus, I'm in you now. Would you deal with this thing? I hate it. I don't hate it because I want to earn something. I hate it because it doesn't look like you. I hurt it because it's offensive to you. I hate it because I know that it is not the life that you've called me to. And then we're free from worrying about what anybody else thinks. I don't care what you people think. I'm in Christ. My standing with Christ doesn't rest on your opinions of me. You see, I used to always use that phrase. I, I, would, I would always, I don't know that I've ever used it here, but I'd use it in my house all the time. I, I would tell my wife, you know, it's a good thing. She would say, you know, somebody doesn't like you, or maybe she'd say, I don't like you. But she'd say, you know, something. And I'd say, you know what? It's a really good thing that I don't derive my sense of self-worth based on what other people think of me. But what I'd done was I'd made myself into Lord. What I was saying was, I love myself, and I don't care if you don't love me. But we can get to a point where in Christ we can say, I'm in Christ. And because I'm in Christ, my Father loves me, regardless of my performance, regardless of how you grade me, regardless of whether I fit in. In Christ, my Father loves me. That's our new identity. And it's then that we find real security. No, no longer is there room for despising ourselves or for, be, for being overly boastful. Because we come to ourselves and we see ourselves as we really are. And we see what it means to truly be in Christ. We can come to this just incredible balance where we can say, you know what? In my sinful nature, I am so depraved that it required the death of God's only son to set me free. But I am so loved that he died willingly. Do you see this? I'm set free from any illusions of being self-made, self-righteous, self-holy. I'm so depraved that the only way that my sins could be paid for and I could be made right with God was for his only son to take my place on the cross. And yet I am worth so much that he did it. That the gates of hell could not prevent him from dying for me. That is how much I am worth. That is how much I am loved. And it wasn't because I was good. I want to run through a wall right now. When you find yourself there, that level of humble and that level of confident, all in the same place, in Christ Jesus, you talk about not caring what other people think about you. You talk about not hating what you see in the mirror every day. That's where God wants you, at the end of yourself and in Christ. And then, as we find ourselves thinking rightly about God, rightly about the gospel, rightly about ourselves, then we can relate rightly to each other. Knowing that all my sin debt has been paid so that when I come into contact with somebody, a sinner, a Pharisee, whatever they are, whether they find themselves too holy, you know this applies both ways, right? This wasn't just a promise for the tax collectors. It was a promise for the Pharisees too if they would receive it. So that when we look down our nose at the bigot and the closed-minded and the narrow and the too religious, or we look down our nose at the unholy and the irreligious and the sinner and the tax collector, for both of them the answer is the same. All my sin debt has been paid. I see you got a bunch of debt. You'll love him. He's going to pay it all. Isn't that the message that Jesus had? He was in a Pharisee's house. A guy named Simon. And, and this woman had come, 
and, and she, had, she had broken, uh, she, had, she, had, she had anointed his feet, and she's crying, and she's taking her hair down, and she's literally rubbing Jesus' feet with her hair. And, and this Pharisee named Simon, he's saying, man, how can Jesus let this woman touch him? Doesn't he know what kind of a sinner she was? She was a sinful woman. He had freed her. And this sinful woman was touching him. He's saying, man, how can, how can you let her touch you like this? That's what Jesus said. Do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. But she has wet my feet with her tears, and she has wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss. But from the time I came, she has not ceased kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. That we can go to people that have much sin, and we can say, you're going to love him. Because he's going to pay it all. It's all already been paid. Would you just reach out your hands in faith and take the gift? Let me tell you how cherished you are. As despicable as you are right now, let me tell you how cherished and loved and valuable you are to your Father who is in heaven. He sent his Son. He gave the perfect Son to come and die for you, you imperfect sinner. Now watch what he will do. Dear friends, that's the message of the gospel. That's what it means to be found in Christ. If I'm ashamed of anything, I'm ashamed that it, this continues to escape me. That I continue to forget this truth. That I continue to go on my knees before my father and ask him, judge me, judge me, judge me. How did I do this week? How was my performance? He looks at me and says, son, you don't want to be judged. It won't be pretty. Let me instead tell you how much you're loved. Let me instead remind you what I did because of your poor performance. Let me give you assurance every single day that you are mine. If you would just be quiet enough, if you would quit working so dang hard, if you would be still enough, you would hear my small whisper telling you, you are mine. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you, Father, that for those that are found in your son, Jesus Christ, we no longer need to live these lives of just frantic activity, frantic self-made holiness, struggling and scrambling and working and always looking over our shoulder, always examining ourselves, always wondering if we've been, if we've been good enough that our place in your family, for those that are found in Christ Jesus, that our place in your family is because of him. It's because of his righteousness. It's because of his holiness. It's because of his death, his atonement for our sins. That's all wrapped up in Jesus Christ. Help us to see that. Help us just to keep looking to Jesus Christ. That the only examination that needs to happen in our lives is we need to be consistently examining ourselves to say, am I in Christ? Am I truly trusting in him? Am I truly leaning back into him? Do I truly believe that he is enough? So, Father God, I cannot help but imagine that there are some that are joining us this morning, Father, that just, they are not there. They looked around and they thought, man, I, I, I think I fit in. My efforts are working. And yet they've never felt any assurance in their heart. They've never felt a sense of peace that comes when Jesus comes to you. And, Father, today's the day. I plead with you, Father. Would you stir in their hearts? They don't need to be in a church house to make this jump, to reach out their hands of faith, 
to truly repent of their sin and truly trust in your son Jesus Christ and so Father I plead with you do the thing that only you can do Father we pray that the songs we sing now would be pleasing to your ears that you would be glorified it's your son's precious name we pray Amen